Hello and welcome to the Facing Up podcast with me, Luke Grenfell-Shaw. In 2018, at the age of 24, I was diagnosed with stage 4 cancer. Since then, I have been on a journey full of challenges, which has led me to ask the question, how do we face up to the challenges in our lives? To help me answer this question, each week I learn from different guests how they faced up to the challenges in their own lives, and perhaps even how they led to opportunities. I hope that by listening, you will be better able to face up to the challenges in your lives so you can live your best life today. This week, I am joined by Emma Skye, who is someone I never thought I would have the opportunity to talk to. I picked up her book, I don't know how many years ago in Waterstones, and I was like, God, this looks like a really interesting book. It's about this person who's worked out in Iraq seemed to have some great insight into it. And at this time I was just studying Arabic and I thought, wow, this, this is a really interesting book. Um, here I am about five years later talking to Emma Skye. And so this is, this is a very exciting moment for me. So I hope everyone who's listening will indulge my um, enthusiasm and excitement throughout this next hour. A bit of a background to Emma. Emma studied Hebrew and Arabic at Oxford, partly inspired by the first intifada in, in Palestine, which diverted her from the classics into something perhaps at the cutting edge of current. Um, she then went on to work at the British Council out in Jerusalem, was involved in the peace process between Israel and Palestine. And as you can guess, the, the next logical step was to uh, become the governor of a province in Iraq. The next logical step after that was to become the political advisor to the top American general in Iraq. And she has then well, since that and continuing has gone on to lead a very varied career, very much uh, an itinerant globetrotter. And she is now the director of the World Fellows Program at Yale University, which brings together some of the brightest and best and most uh, varied minds from around the world. I think we're going to get into a few more details and exactly how you went on this journey very shortly. But Emma, it is an absolute pleasure to have you on the Facing Up podcast. Luke, thank you very much for inviting me on. And none of what you just read out, none of that was planned. So all people who are like, you know, in their 20s thinking everything is planned from the time you graduate through to the time you retire, it's not true. I think that's a really interesting point there because, well, so much of my life has now, in the last couple of years, has not been planned. And it just, following your nose, just leads you in some many more interesting directions than you'd expect you know, if you'd had your life planned out and were rigidly following it. No, it's, it's absolutely true. I think opportunities come along in life and it's whether you take them or not. Sometimes things happen to you that completely come out of the blue and it's how you respond to them. So with all of these things, yes, there are things outside your control, but how you respond to the events is within your control. Absolutely. That's completely my attitude as well, that there are some things that come along and it feels like the world has ended for you or for your family, but you've still got to sort of work out how, what can I do in this situation I'm still living? If I just decide to give up, well, I'm the one who's losing out. So how can I move forward? So um, Emma, you, you were working for the British Council and in 2003, the invasion of Iraq took place. How old were you, Luke, in 2003? I, oh God, mental maths off the top of my head. I mean, nine years old. It was weird. I was thinking about this. It was very much, I barely knew what was happening. I remember, you know, like playing out in the field at school and one of the older boys was like, peace, peace with like the B sign. And I didn't really get what any of that was about. It was only a very vague comprehension of the war, what Iraq was, what it was all about. What was a weapon of mass destruction? I had no idea. How did you see it that time? Well, I was somebody who was very much anti-war. My whole sort of being was very anti-war. I'd spent years, as you mentioned, in Jerusalem, working with Israelis and Palestinians. And during the first Gulf War, I was a student at Oxford. And, you know, I was on every anti-war demonstration. I signed up to be a human shield. So being somebody who very, you know, actively protested wars and went out to difficult places to try and help broker peace, that was very much in my DNA. 
And so in the build-up to the 2003 war, I was very anti-war. But when the decision was taken that we were going to war, and afterwards when the British government said, hey, we need people to run Iraq, I volunteered. I thought I could go out there, apologize to Iraqis for the war, and use all the skills I've developed from working in Israel-Palestine to help them rebuild their country. Mm. And presumably that goes well beyond being fluent in Arabic. Well, none of these things, when they asked for volunteers, they didn't actually look for people's skill sets. Oh, that's so it was kind of depressing. <laughs> you'd like to feel that they had all these jobs outlined and then you applied for a job and they matched. No, mm. when I volunteered to go, I was just, you know, one of, I don't know how many volunteered to go. I can't remember how many was, but it was in the dozens. It wasn't in the hundreds. And I didn't know what my job was going to be before I went out. Right. So we have Emma Skye, who is passionately anti-war, pro-peace, going out to Iraq, not knowing what the job is. And you end up in Kirkuk province in northeastern Iraq on the border with Kurdistan, Iraqi Kurdistan. And you became the governor coordinator, right? How on earth do you get going on a job like that? How This must have been so far out of your comfort zone. How do you deal with that kind of challenge? Yes, you know, you're suddenly told that you're, like the equivalent of being a mayor of a town or a governor of a province. Um, you know, I'd never been a mayor of a town in the UK, let alone the governor of a province in someone else's country. So this whole thing of like, oh my God, you know, this is so embarrassing. It's so beyond my skill set. It's so, and you start coming up with all of this, but at the end of the day, who else was going to do it? Any it Iraqis? Well, we had to find the Iraqis to put them in place so that, you know, initially when we went in, we dismissed those incumbents. Yeah, and the association with the Ba'ath Party. Yes. Yeah. So there was de-Ba'athification. There was, you know, a lot of people who were involved in the former regime ran away. Others we dismissed from their jobs. And there was supposed to be, we were told, a three-month period where we administered the country before we handed it back to the Iraqis. Mm. So that was the plan. The role was to get Iraqi institutions up and functioning post-war. And, you know, when I arrived in Kirkuk, I was, you know, there were very, very few civilians there. There was a U.S. military brigade and the military was doing everything. And of course, they weren't told what to do. They were just getting on and doing it. And I was so aware of all the things they were doing wrong. And I kept criticizing them and criticizing them. And the brigade commander said, look, instead of criticizing us all the time, why don't you actually work with us and try and help us do the right thing? Right. So that kind of like, oh, that's really crossing a line. Oh. But I was effective. I'd never worked with militaries before. Civilians aren't supposed to work with militaries. Was that also crossing a moral line? It was crossing what I, at that time, thought of as probably a moral line. It was always this sense, you know, we shouldn't be at war. This war is not a legal war. So the whole, you know, the first time actually going to Iraq, to go into a country which we had invaded in a way that I didn't regard as legal, to then be put in a situation as occupier, I didn't realize I was going to be an occupier, then... You know, the reason I started working with the military was because in my first week in Kirkuk, insurgents came to my house and blew it up with me in it. So then it became a sense of, look, if I'm just staying do this job, I have to be able to function. And I can't live in my house because my house no longer exists. You know, I was very fortunate. So I moved on to the airfield. Right. So you were fortunate Air not to be killed in that ambush on your house. Yeah, no, I was very fortunate. You know, a few weeks after that attack was the attack on UN headquarters in Baghdad and the killing of Sergio de Mella. And, you know, there were a number of assassination attempts going on. So I was very, very fortunate. And so I moved onto the airfield and, you know, I lived in a tent for a while on an airfield. And that was the airfield was controlled by the US military. So I came into contact with the military because I needed somewhere to live. And from then on, you know, it wasn't a, for the insurgents, they didn't differentiate between, hello, here is a British civilian and these are US military. 
Right. We were all foreigners. We were all seen as part of the U.S. project. So everybody was a target in a way. It sounds fascinating that before my reading of this is before you could start cooperating and working with the Iraqis, you actually had to start cooperating and working with the Americans, which I imagine is not the way of doing things you would have liked. Yes, I realized that, you know, when you think of who's the power in the province, the power, the guys in uniform, because not only did they have guns, they had money and they had organization. So I was there supposedly given this big title with minimum organization. I had very few people working for me. People had just come from, you know, different places. There was no organization as such. We had to build that. And the resources, mine were far less than the military's. So by working, creating a joint team, by working together, it meant that I could use the organization of the military, could use the resources of the military and the people. They had many talented people in their organization, as I found out. I mean, who knew that people in the military would have master's degrees from Harvard and places like that? It was like, this was all a bit of a shock. Yeah, to brains me. as well as brawn. What is this? Yeah, why is that needed? So, and they still shoot straight. <laughs> um, you make it sound very um, well thought through that, you know, here I am, governor, um, coordinator, you know, don't have that many resources myself, so I'll partner with the US military and we'll get things done. Um, that sounds great, but can you just take me back to the first day you got to whatever your office was? And just how you felt about the challenges and uncertainties ahead, because there must, you know, how do you even make a start in that situation? Well, how do you even know what your office is supposed to be? So they had the, it was the Kukuk government building. So that was the headquarters of local government, where the governor sat, where the members of the provincial council, all of that. But of course, there weren't any at the time. So when I moved into the building, every room in that building had been taken over by US military. So different units, you know, one thing would say paratroopers, or 173rd civil affairs or tankers or whatever. Every unit had got its own motto and whatever, had them on the doors. Mm. So even to find an office was hard enough because everything had been taken over. When I went to see the brigade commander, to basically introduce myself and to say, could I find some accommodation on the airfield because my house has just been blown up. <laughs> he was the one who said, we're gonna to work together. We're gonna to share an office. And he'd already taken over the governor's office, which was this really large office. Very nice-ish. Trying <laughs> to said, resist making any sorts of comments <laughs> about, you know, brigade commanders taking over the largest room in the building, but. Um... It's kind of, you know, the, the top guy gets the biggest room. Yeah. They were already starting to repair and do all the, all the works on the building because mm. everywhere it was run down and damaged and looted. So they were already working on repairing it. And he said, you know, we're going to share an office. In Baghdad, it was Ambassador Bremer and General Sanchez. In Kirkuk, it was to be Colonel Mabel and Emma Sky. And the motto of their unit was Sky Soldiers. So everywhere we went, soldiers would jump up and say, Sky Soldiers. Mm. And I had no idea. I'd never heard of units having mottos. And I thought, this is really embarrassing. Everywhere <laughs> I go, you know, my surname is Sky, and people are jumping up and saying Sky Soldiers. Mm. It was all rather weird. So um, relatively soon on, it, you, know, you, you started working with the American troops there. Um, but how did you actually start identifying what work needed to be done, reaching out to um, Iraqis? Like, who, who are the influential Iraqis? Who are the people who are respected? Um, I still don't have a kind of flavor of like, I'm just trying to put myself in your situation, which would be just terrible in so many ways. Um, but I'm just like, what, how would I even start trying to, you know, what's the 101 of rebuild a, a, a province or a, a state apparatus or trust? And, well, the first thing you do is get to know the people in the province. And Kukuk is a very, you know, it's about one and a half million people. And it was a province that is highly contested. 
So under Saddam, the Ba'ath Party, they wanted to keep control of Kirkuk because it has oil fields and 40% of Iraq's oil comes from Kirkuk. And so in this province, Saddam pushed out people who were Kurdish and Turkmen and brought in Arabs from the south who were Shia. And in the aftermath, it was called Arabization. In the aftermath of 2003, Kurds and Turkmen were coming back and they were kicking out Arabs. Now, most of the Arabs who were seen as the, the new Arabs, the 10,000 dinar families, people who had you know, come up for a small amount of money, but also some of the Arabs who were indigenous to the province. So we had massive uh, population displacement. And so coming into the situation, you know, I had just been attacked. So I needed to find out who was attacking us and why to really understand the environment and to understand the grievances of different groups. Everybody there had a grievance. Some were fearful of the past, some were fearful of the future. And it was very, very complex. And of course, coming in as an outsider to try and understand what was going on was really, really complicated. So who who were the representatives of which groups? You had new political parties. Um, so the Kurds were quite well organized because they had years in with their area in the north where they had two main parties, the PUK, KDP, and they had all party machinery. They were organized. Some parts of the Turkmens were politically organized. The Arabs weren't organized at all. They had a Ba'ath party and the Ba'ath party was dissolved and there was no other political organization. So you had tribal structures. And then there were plenty of people who didn't relate to any of these political parties or these leaders or anybody. So it would be layer after layer of meeting with different groups, trying to understand their concerns, trying to mediate between different groups. So I really was spent a lot of my time mediating, like day in, day out, helping people understand what was happening. And of course, you know, people thought this is America. America put a man on the moon. In six months time, we're gonna have a fully developed country. New democracy, so, all the bells and whistles. Yes, they thought they were going to be like Dubai in six months. And so they were sitting there, <laughs> people waiting for all of these things to happen. And because they didn't have... So the Iraqis thought that they, the, 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 their country would be developed at breakneck speed, a la Dubai. Yeah, I thought it would be turned into Dubai in six months by the Americans. Uh, I thought you were saying that the, you know, it was the American troops who were like, yeah, we're going to, you know, just you wait. There's going to be, you know, a new, you know... Or whatever, you know, sort of all sorts of skyscrapers built, but. <laughs> no, it was Iraqi. It was Iraqis. And we overpromised and under delivered all the time. And so that led to all these conspiracy theories that, you know, we were taking their oil. We would take, they didn't have electricity because we were stealing their oil. Mm -hmm. You think, well, there's no electricity because every time we try and restore the line, an insurgent comes along and blows it up. Mm -hmm. So, and the same people who would come to us to get paid a contract to guard the pipeline, parts of their tribe would also be blowing it up. So they were getting like double payments all the time. And so, you know, there you are as an ignorant foreigner. And it seems to be that lots of people in the province knew what was going on. But how do we understand what is going on? So very complex. Yes. And I know that we've really only scratched the surface there. Um, before we move on, I was just wondering to the extent, and I guess this might be a question that goes for all of your time in Iraq, um, that, but perhaps particularly when you are governing, you know, as you said, like the mayor of this country, like, you know, I, you know, being the mayor of Bristol, you know, would be enough of a task, but let alone. Marvin Rees, good man. Yeah, Marvin Rees, yes. Um, and I was wondering to what extent you felt like you were had maybe a bit of an identity struggle of being kind of a part of this new colonialism, you know, being this person who's very out of place, doesn't really understand what's going on, though you'd understand it so much better than a lot of people. Um, and yet you were a person who has sort of helping to guide this province and making key decisions. Did that sit, was that quite uncomfortable? 
you know, when you're there, you are just working so hard from the moment you wake up to the moment you go to sleep. And there isn't really much time to stand back and see things in this bigger frame. You know, every day we were just trying to prevent civil war from happening. That was the main fundamental struggle. The idea, you know, I was working for the British Council at the time, I was on secondment. And they said, your three months is up, it's time for you to come home. I said, I can't come home. You know, I'm, I've got this like, rather large job and there's no one to replace me. And they're like, you know, don't be stupid, come home. And you think, you know, in a situation like Cook, they needed someone to mediate. And I was playing that mediator role. So I wasn't thinking all the time, oh, isn't it terrible that I'm here? I was thinking I'm trying to do my best to prevent the fabric of society completely breaking down. Right. So in, in a way, um, having this time to sort of analyze and potentially overanalyze the sort of meaning of what one's doing and you know, whether it's good or bad, that's a luxury. I think that comes later when you stand back and reflect. But for many of us who worked in Iraq, Iraq became an absolute passion mm. that, you know, we, lots of us cared deeply, deeply about this country and its future that mm. feel, you know, I feel I have a stake in its future, want to help, want to make it better. And yes. that's a very deep relationship. Yes. And so you, Fast forward a few years, you, you did eventually go back to the UK about a year later, but by 2007, you were back out in Iraq as the political advisor to General Odinero, um, who was the, the top general, US general in, in Iraq. How did that come about to start with? That's quite a sort of jump up again, it seems, you know, you're sort of doing this... Um, I don't know, amazing vaulting up the side of a mountain or something. Well, you know, there weren't many people who wanted to go and work in places like Iraq. So you, you can get these field promotions as such. But General Odiano, back in 2003, had also been the general responsible for the area of Iraq that I was in. So he came regularly to Kirkuk, and I met him numerous times there. And you know, we got on very, very well. So when he was appointed to be the operational commander for the surge, he sent me this email and said, please, will you come and be my political advisor? And I thought, you know, the first time I'd gone out to Iraq was to apologize to Iraqis for the war. Second time I'm going because this American general has asked me to, and he was an American general with um, a mixed reputation. I liked him a lot. I had huge respect for him, but he was seen as somebody who was very like tough and at one end of the spectrum of the use of force. And when so, I got so out- Quite the far end of the spectrum, quite, we're very willing yeah. to use force. And that goes with the surge, which was this big influx of American troops trying to restore order, right? In, in 2007. To do things in a different manner. And for him, when I arrived, I said, you know, what, what do you want me to do? And he said, back in 2003, I had nobody to tell me when I was screwing up. I had nobody who I could, you know, have those talks with in the evenings. I didn't have a confidant. And he said, I want you to come with me wherever I go, whether it's the front line of battle or meeting with the president. And I want you to you know, prepare me for these meetings, debrief me and tell me when I'm making mistakes. And I think just by saying that, that says a lot about him. Because people always say to you as a leader, you should have people around you who are different from you. And people don't. They have people who are like them, people who think the same as them. Mm. But Odiano and I think completely differently. We're completely different backgrounds. If it hadn't been for the Iraq war, our paths would never have crossed. Mm. You know, we've not read the same books. We don't like the same things. There is no point of, you know, he's massive. He's like six foot five, American football player. He's huge. Right. Shaven. I mean, he looks very scary. Yeah. 
And but he for people who can't see, Emma, you're not, you're not a giant you're, you're, yourself. No, I'm not a giant. <laughs> I'm but he was somebody, you know, we had a very good banter. We, I could tell him in a funny, humorous way when people weren't around, I would embarrass him in front of others. But he really wanted me to say my opinion mm. and gave me that opportunity to say that. I think um, honest feedback delivered because you care about the other person is one of the most valuable gifts that we can receive for our own personal development. And he, in between, two th- you know, his son was in the army. And after, in between 2003 and 2007, his son had served in Iraq and had been badly wounded in an attack, got his arm blown off and his driver was killed. So this war is a war that is personal. And for someone like General Odierno, who until Iraq believed that, you know, the US military could achieve anything in the world, greatest military the world has ever seen, and then of it course, comes yeah. up against <laughs> Right. And what do you do when the greatest military in the world can't solve this problem? And so he realized that needed to do things differently, needed a different skill set, a skill set that they didn't have. And he believed that I could help him. So I thought, you know, he's a guy I trust, he's a guy I respect. If he thinks I can help him, then that will be my role, is trying to help him be the best that he can be. Yeah. With 170,000 troops in country, Iraq at that time was in civil war. It was in a disastrous state. Hundreds of thousands had been killed. And every day, every morning, you'd find dead bodies in the streets of Baghdad. You could tell whether they were Sunni or Shia, depending whether they'd been shot through the head or drilled through the head. Yeah. It's not a very, very tough environment to be in. I want to, I'm really interested, uh, there's so much that we could talk about, and I know you've, you've talked about, uh, you know, a lot of the details of the, 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 the surge before, but I want to ask a different question of how it was to be, you know, this is a very male-dominated environment. This is the military. It's a very macho environment. You've got, you know, people like Odieno, who are, as you said, six foot five, there's so much, um, you know, talk and conversation discourse today about, um, you know, the difficulties in, in many different ways um, for both men and women in various forms of sexism, just, just in the office. And yet this seems to be an environment that would perhaps be magnifying any sorts of, you know, um, differences. How did you, how was it? Was yeah, how, how was that factor? How, how was that environment to be a, you know, a relatively isolated woman? You know, it is a very male environment. And I think the US military has done a lot to try and create um, an inclusive environment. So when you're fighting, you've got to rely on the person on the left and the person on the right. So people are in the room, are in the room because they bring something. And I was seen as somebody who had something useful to contribute. If I didn't have anything useful to contribute, then I'd be quickly marginalized. And the general made it known that I was important to him, that I was to be in his inner circle. So wherever we went, there was a seat for me besides him. And, you know, I can think of... (laughs) Many times in organizations, you've got to really struggle to get your seat. With them, I never had to struggle to get my seat. My seat was there. What I did with my seat was, you know, I had to be the best that I could be. I put in huge amounts of work in order to be an effective advisor. But he was the one who gave me the opportunity and the platform to play that role. Interestingly enough, the Iraqi Prime Minister, Nouri al-Maliki, his primary advisor was a woman, Dr. Bassema. And, you know, yeah. Dr. Bas- Dr. Bassema and I would spend hours together, you know, going like these military men, you know, they're so this, they're so that. Right. We had, we had many things in common, but she had that role. She was a, a rocket scientist, a PhD in rocket science. 
She was wow. really efficient. She was, she really got things done. So you saw in these meetings, it'd be like these two men and behind them or to the side of them would be these two women. Where the real conversation happened. <laughs> well, we were always, you know, trying to prepare our respective principles for those meetings. And when the meetings went well, you know, we would look at each other and kind of wink. We had, we had got them to agreement. And that sense, people don't just go into, you know, when you see those meetings and negotiations, when principals go into a room, there are advisors behind who've been doing all the legwork to find where the deal is possible to prepare their principles. It sounds really interesting because it sounds like um, you and Dr. Bassam? Bassama. Bassama. Um, you, it seems like you both saw eye to eye way before... Odierno and Maliki saw eye to eye. You know, it seemed like you two were on the common wavelength and then you just had to get your two, as you said, respective principles to kind of also share the common wavelength that you were already on. But it took a long time. That, you know, that doesn't just happen. We had to build, we had to get to know each other. So Basima really distrusted the US military. The military was horrible about her. They would leak things in the media. They were constantly, you know, she's a really difficult person. And there's a reason that she's a difficult person. You know, if you were treated like that all the time, you'd be a difficult person. So it took us a while to build up that trust. You know, she wanted to, of course, she thought all these conspiracy theories about America and to go through to try and convince her that what had gone wrong in Iraq was due to incompetence, not conspiracy and hours and hours and hours. She wanted this explanation, that explanation. So it took a long time to build up the trust. You need trust to have a working relationship. Unless you've got that trust, how can you ever reach an agreement? In the US military, in military intelligence, there were very strong women in military intelligence. And I worked very closely with them. And we understood, you know, the military tends to view things in terms of enemy and friends. Mm. So the enemy in Iraq, all these people who are fighting, were just called the enemy. And to try and work out who are these people, why are they fighting and what do they want? Sounds like Star so Wars, very, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> so we worked very, very closely with this other group of women to try and work out who these different groups were and to stop calling them the enemy, call them by their names and find out what it is they wanted. Could we do a deal? So this change, getting the military to change its mindset, the whole thing of the surge was not really about the extra numbers, it was about doing things differently. Right. So it wasn't, you know, this idea of trying to work out who's fighting and why, trying to do deals, mm. trying to get people to give up using force and come into the political process, getting the Iraqi prime minister to see that we weren't bringing back the Ba'ath party to overthrow him. You know, yeah. there's a lot of, lot of work going on in this. Yes. And to return to the point of gender, in a sense, it sounded like that wasn't a big factor for you in terms of the environment that you're operating in. Well, I grew up in a very male-dominated environment. In the, the world that I've moved in and lived in my whole life has been very heavily male-dominated. And so I, when you get involved in security, you're moving to a field where there aren't so many women. I can see many women coming up behind me now, many women getting involved in this. Mm. But also growing up in a time where you didn't think in terms so much of identity, where now right. everybody is very focused on their identity. At that right. time, just got on and did it and tried to push through and tried to get there. But I wouldn't look around and think, oh, I'm the only woman in the room. I've been the only woman in classrooms. I've been the only woman in, you know, in many, many different settings. Mm. So it's not something I think, oh, I'm the only woman. Right. What do you it's think a, then oh. about this, um, you know, we're much more conscious of our identity. Is, is, is that a positive thing? Or does that actually detract from getting the job done, for instance? You know... You want everybody to be able to develop to their full potential, to contribute to their full potential. Because if everybody's developing to their full potential, 
contributing to their full potential, our society flourishes. And yeah. I think that is really, that's really positive. The negative will be, I'm not developing because you are stopping me. And then we're not leveling up, we're all leveling down. Yeah. And I see things much more in terms of power than in terms of gender or race. It's who has power and what they do with that power. So it's, you know, it's really important that people are aware of the obstacles that prevent people from developing to their full potential and mm. to work at removing those obstacles to allow everyone to develop to their full potential. You want society as a whole to go forward and not for us all to turn on each other and bring each other down. It sounds like you look at this more holistically in sort of a, you know, rather than categorizing all the different ways that we might, someone might be discriminated against or um, have additional challenges thrown at them, you're just sort of thinking, well, you know, if there are challenges, regardless of what they are, you know, how can we remove them? You know, not regardless of what they are, but regardless of why they're there, if they're to do with gender or something else, you know, or, or race or ethnicity, it's more of a, whatever the challenge is, we need to help people um, or work out how people can re realize their potential. Yeah, and sometimes there are these really strong structural barriers. So how do you remove them? Mm. You know, from my experience in Iraq, when we got to Iraq, we decided we want to create this pluralistic society. And then we thought of Iraq as Sunni Shia Kurd, as if these were three homogenous groups, as right. if that's the only part of somebody's identity. Yeah. And what we did, we broke down a state. We thought of people in those terms. The whole electoral system became, if you're Sunni, you vote for Sunni Shia for Shia, Kurd for Kurd. And the country descended into civil war. So Do you I think that became a self-fulfilling prophecy because America and, and the UK defined as Sunni Shia Kurd, it then translated that, that people perhaps more than they would have done otherwise you know, voted along the lines of, oh, I am a Shia, I will vote for the Shia candidate. There were no other political parties. The political parties were then based on that. So the political parties were formed kind of with the America saying, we need a Shia political party, we need a Sunni political party. Is that how it happened? All the incentive structures were set that way. Some of the political parties have been there for years, but mm -hmm. the incentive structures were set that way. Mm -hmm. And so that is what happened. Mm -hmm. And this is what becomes dangerous. When you live together in a country, you have all those things in common. Mm -hmm. And you want a state that emphasizes the commonalities. And not that says that job is for Sunni, that job for a Shia, that job for a Kurd. And this was part of the reason the collapse of the state, the institutionalization of sect and ethnicity created the civil war. So these people who have lived together for centuries upon centuries upon centuries were then killing each other. So that is identity politics taken to an extreme. The challenge is, to, you know, we live in shared spaces. We live in society. How do you create that state structure that has institutions that can mediate conflict, that allows everybody to have opportunities and to develop to their full potential? That's a challenge for every country. Yes. But we didn't emphasize the Iraqiness, we emphasized sub-identities. Yes, and because it was so crude, the incredible complexity of each person's identity was reduced to one point. It, Just one point where, you know, there is no single narrative. We're all complex people. We've all got complex identities and yes. in different environments, different aspects of your identity become the major part of your identity. Yes. Yeah. Um, to move on, you came back, in 2010 from this time in Iraq where you were, you know, um, working incredibly hard for something that you seem incredibly passionate about and you found incredibly meaningful. Um, and you, and you return on, you know, I read this, the, the you, to, to, to no one, to no fanfare, to no trumpets, no one even knew you were coming back. 
to your to your flat in in London and your house in London and well, um, how did you deal with the loss? That loss of meaning and purpose and identity. It seems like you do at least now um, recognize identity, even if it wasn't something as you were growing up. Like identity does seem important. How did you deal with all of this? Well, my identity was very much wrapped around my job. So I had spent, you know, the best part of between, you know, 2003 to 2010, I'd been away at war. So whether it's Iraq or Afghanistan or back in Jerusalem. And, you know, working on behalf of the British government. To then come back in 2010 and, you know, I didn't have a job. I'd had to leave my work in the British Council and go on contract. And so when I came back, I had no job. There was nobody who wanted to hear about the experiences. There was no one to debrief me. I was the longest serving Brit in Iraq. I'd worked at wow. all of these levels. You know, I was very integrated within the US system. And nobody in the UK wanted to know or wanted to hear about it. And, you know, there's no one to say like, Thank you. Thank you for trying so hard. There was no one to say anything. So the first time I actually got to talk about it was when I was asked to testify before the Iraq inquiry. Goodness. That must have been difficult as well to have, um, must be incredibly difficult to have no recognition. I think I'm very fortunate to say with the, the, you know, the Bristol to Beijing cycle ride that so many people have been incredibly supportive and that's made me feel great. I'm like, right, this is something that's really worth doing. You know, like I'm, you know, everyone's telling me that this, this is you know, very impactful and that's amazing to hear. But when you don't hear that, and yet it's something that you spent best part of a decade on and off, you know, in, in that area of the world. I mean, that's Iraq, Afghanistan, Jerusalem. Um, you put so much time and effort into that. You know, the Iraq war is hugely unpopular. And people just wanted to draw a line on it and just let's move swiftly on. Mm. And the Brits had really pulled out, I think, by the end of 2007, 2008. There really weren't any Brits left working there. So I had continued within the US system, continuing to work on something I felt very important. And I think for anybody, when they've been involved in such things, when they come home, it's always going to be difficult. But normally, you will have an institution that you go back to, and normally you'll get debriefed, that somebody will sit you down and say, you know, tell me what you learned, how was it, what should we take away from this? And to not have that happen when I got back, to just, <laughs> you know, to come back to absolutely nothing. I had no job, I had no income, I had no purpose, I had nothing. So it's like... So what happens the rest of my life? Yeah. So how did you move forward? There was a really good friend of mine who's a professor at Harvard, Megan O'Sullivan, who told me about these fellowships they have at Harvard, where you come for one semester to the Institute of Politics at the Kennedy School to be an interesting person about campus and to inspire young people to go into public service. Sounds great. So I, yeah, I put in an application and it's the students themselves who choose who the fellows are. Oh, wow. Ooh. So they, select five, they select six fellows a semester, two semesters, so they select six fellows and sometimes one of them is an international. So I put in my application and I think in December, I was interviewed, sitting where I'm sitting now, <laughs> interviewed by these Harvard students about why I wanted to come and what I would talk about while I was there. Mm. And I said, I'm going to talk about our post 9-11 wars. Was it for national security or was it imperial hubris? And I want to create a space where we can have a debate about that. What were we doing? Have we made the world safe or have we created more enemies? And I'm going to have great conversations with generals in the front line through to people working in civil society. That's what I'm going to do. Mm. And they said, hey, that sounds really cool. So it's a bit of a scary interview. I've been interviewed by people who are like 18, 19, 20. Yeah, right. 
shoe on the other foot, certainly from where you are now. <laughs> but I, I got to go to Harvard for a semester. Mm. And that was wonderful because there I was surrounded by all of these students who wanted to hear all my stories. So it, sounds like <laughs> it sounds like you're getting recognition. If that's sort of what I'm taking away from this, perhaps prematurely, but you didn't get any of that in the UK. No one gave a damn about what you'd done, more or less. And now you're in this environment where people were really receptive to hearing and wanting to gain from your knowledge and understanding. Yeah, I think recognition, I'm not sure recognition is the right word because it wasn't about ego. It was mm -hmm. more to do with almost therapy. It's oh. like I need to talk things through. Right. And so teaching, when you've actually got to teach and you can talk and you can learn, that is very therapeutic. So was this a way that you could come to terms with your own experience? Yes. You know, in Iraq, you know, during that year of the surge, we had a thousand soldiers die that year. So you come up with a plan and then people go and implement that plan and a thousand people died. You think, what did they die for? What was it all for? How can you give meaning to that? And you can give meaning to it by talking about what they did, how they lived, yes. what, you know, what sort of people that they were. And so teaching and then writing became a way of processing this and giving meaning to the effort, to the lives, to the whole endeavor. Because if we can learn something from that experience, if others who come after us can learn something from that experience, then that was worth living. So even though it has been a disaster, if people can learn from it and it helps them do things differently, then that's something invaluable to pass on. Yes. And it's the, it's the little that we can do to give their lives that could have been so full and were cut short more, a little more meaning than they might otherwise have had. Um, and I'm, and I, my book, in the unraveling, I write about them as if they're all still alive. Mm. I write about how they lived. Mm. And you can go through the book and you think, that person's dead, that person's dead, that person committed suicide afterwards, that person had a breakdown. But in the book, they are as they were, as they lived. Mm. And that was important. So you remember people... You know, you don't remember them when they grew old and decrepit. You remember them when they were living life, doing something that they thought was important. Yeah, you were capturing their spirit. Yes. Like. So I feel that was my role, really, from the war. It wasn't so much about what I did during the war. It became mm. more of explaining the war to people, mm. teaching about it and helping the next generation. And so now this book is studied in the war colleges. <clears throat> people read, people like you, I've never come across you, you know, if it wasn't yeah. through the book. Some rando gives you an email saying, I read your book, <laughs> great. <laughs> Can I talk? <laughs> yeah, these things, legacies are passed on mm. in different ways. Mm. So we, we can learn from each other, we pass on, because it is about improving things for the next generation. The world's yeah. a big place and it's a big universe and we have a little speck of time. And what can you do to do things a little bit better for the next lot? Yeah. How can you help those who come after you have some tools and instruments to live their life? Yeah. I think um, before we move on, as, as difficult as it is for me, what you were saying about, you know, remembering people who have, um, you know, through telling their stories, you know, that's, that's just something that um, is so powerful and deep and personal to me. Um, and I, you know, some ways don't want to talk about it, but in other ways, that's exactly the thing that, you know, my brother John passed away so far before his, his time. And one of the reasons why I'm passionate about trying to at least spread my message of, which hopefully 
some people might hear and then want to do just that little bit more with their life and make their life just that little bit more meaningful and better. Um, if I can tell John in that story, then that is that tiny little thing I can do to make that meaningless, pointless death that little bit more impactful that, you know, John's legacy can live on. And it sounds like that's something that also speaks to you. It absolutely does. I mean, you look at the people who die before their time. And when you get to live, you're not only living your life, you're living their life as well. And it makes you feel you've got to fill it every day that you can to the full amount because you don't know when your time is up. But to try and live each day as fully as you can, to be as good a person as you can, to contribute as much as you can, that is something. And you know that they're up there somewhere looking down on you and like cheering you on. And I think of all the people that I met who lives were taken early, that they contributed to who I am. And now through writing and teaching, I'm contributing to others. And so the legacy goes on. It's part mm. of that long line. Mm. And it, uh, it does go on. It sounds like you really believe in that um, not only the world has the capacity to become a better place, but that it is becoming a better place. And that, you know, sometimes it can feel very difficult to, to, to see that, but there are no books like... Um, factfulness that you know came, came out quite recently and you know, says actually like you know there has been real development um and you know, progress has been made um and i know that's kind of your current direction but in you know from 2010 and then particularly in 2014 the situation in iraq just got worse and worse and in 2014 uh, the islamic state um spread very rapidly across Iraq and Syria, a huge amount of your work and other people's work and lives and money and time of, you know, American, um, British, but most of all Iraqi, um, were lost. How did it make you feel? All this huge amount of time that you put in and so much meaning that you'd gain from this activity and then to see it, in your words, unravel. Yeah, well, I kept going back to Iraq. I mean, when I left my job, it was in 2010, but then I'd go back, you know, twice a year um, to, because I felt so involved. I cared so much. I was forever going back to see Iraqis, traveling around the country, trying to get a sense of what was happening. And, you know, the American policy was just to give the support for the prime minister, even though he lost the election in 2010. And this prime minister was, had horrible policies that were driving people away from each other and pushing people towards ISIS. And watching this, you're like, this is gonna end really, 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 really badly. And so it did. And it was just awful to watch ISIS took over a third of Iraq, just like that, so easily. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we'd spent so much time and money training the Iraqi security forces. Mm. Maliki had removed the good officers because he thought they were too close to the Americans. Yeah. Replaced them by people who were loyal to him. And they took the money that they were supposed to use to spend on weapons and food for the soldiers. Sorry, ammunition and food for the soldiers. When ISIS came in, none of the officers told the soldiers to fight. And without officers, the soldiers just took off their uniforms and fled. And all their equipment was then taken over by ISIS. Mm. None of that needed to happen. But it did happen. And I'm just really intrigued. To how, how did that leave you feeling? Really, really awful. And when the Arab Spring, there was this hope that, you know, despite everything that had gone bad in Iraq, maybe something good was going to happen to the broader Middle East. And so I was following the Arab Spring. I was going, you know, every square, every protest. And I was there in Tahrir. I was there in Tunisia following them. And then I went to Syria and watching Syria thinking, it's going to go like Iraq. It's going to break down into civil war. Mm -hmm. So all the hopes 
that came originally, initially from the Arab Spring started to dissipate. You saw these young people, they were passionate, demanding dignity, demanding opportunities, demanding a future. But there was no organizational capacity to morph into political parties. Mm. So people were very good at saying what they didn't like. <laughs> they weren't so good at coming up with alternatives that could attract a big support. That's always the difficult bit, isn't it? It's always the difficult bit. You know, we can see it now post as we come out of COVID mm. with all these protests gaining steam that, yeah. you know, that is very difficult. It's, you can go out and feel passionate articulating your voice about what's wrong in the world. How do you then develop the right policies? How do you, do, you know, get politicians on board? Mm. How do you get political agendas that might win elections to bring about real change? So it's not just about posting on social media. Mm. Because they you know, are seen as, you know, um, social media was such a huge driver, you know, and a really positive thing, you know, back in 2011 as, a, you know, this amazing way of communication and uh, organizing the protests. But it was proved very effective for that. But as you say, it doesn't provide... Um, everything that's needed then to transition into a better form of governance. And we have the same tools that you can use to mobilize people for good intent can also be used to mobilize for bad intent. Plus all the misinformation, the disinformation, all of this going on. So it's really, really hard to bring about systemic change. And I think, you know, some people have got concerns what's happening in America now. It's going to go like the Arab Spring. Will it actually be able to bring about systemic change? Mm. This is really challenging because it's a problem of our whole economic system of capitalism, which really enables some people to get very, very, very wealthy. Mm. And it encourages human greed or the incentives of a human greed and doesn't put human well-being and the environment as the priorities. So do we have the wherewithal to think what sort of economic system could put human well-being, equality, environment at the center? Because really, when you look at, at the end of the day, what we have in common with each other far outweighs our differences. What humans want more than anything is community. Mm. You need... A certain amount of money to fill your basic needs but after that you're not getting much more enjoyment from that money so can we create this new society a better society mm. talking about this desire to to move towards a yeah a, a better governed world and you know working together I was wondering to what extent this has become your new purpose and, and direction you know you're the uh, the director of the World Fellows Program at Yale University, you get the opportunity, I think it's something like 16 fellows in for four months at Yale each year from all around the world, all different backgrounds, but by all accounts, exceptional individuals. Do you see this as a way of a way of filling in the gaps that say social media didn't in terms of the, the, the Arab Spring protests as a form that might then, this might be a program that then leads to better governance? Or do you see this as something that just brings people from all parts of the world closer together so we can all re-recognize as we need to time and time again that actually we are a lot more similar than we are different. I think both of those things. I mean, I really do believe that individuals matter. Individuals can make a difference. We're working within structural constraints, but your individual, your character, your leadership skills, your ability to manage relationships, those really, really matter. And so as you say, I manage or I direct the World Fellows Program, of which Marvin Rees, the mayor of Bristol, is a Yale World Fellow. Yes, he is, yeah. And we have thousands apply each year, and we bring together 16 people. And yes, these people come from, you know, different countries, different backgrounds, different creeds, different colors, but also different disciplines. So you're putting people together, you've got some who work in civil society, some who are politicians, some who are lawyers, some, you know, who are just in the media. Mm. And by spending time together every week, 
two of them will present on what it is they do professionally and how it contributes to the good society. That our goal is to build, <coughs> excuse me, is to build wherever we live, good societies, good communities. And that's what we show. So inclusive, not just of different race, ethnicity, um, nationality, but inclusive of different ways of thinking, different views. It's not just one view. People have got very different views. Mm. And diversity of thought, diversity of disciplines, diversity of backgrounds, we've all got different things to contribute from our life experiences, from the professions that we pursue, from our personalities. And so it is a world that it imagines a world that a good society in which we are all there flourishing, contributing mm. our talents. And that sounds like one of the most worthwhile objectives I can think of. I was wondering, as the penultimate part to this conversation, whether you, know, you said at the very beginning, you know, this, the way that your life has panned out so far was not planned in the slightest. It has sort of just happened. But I was wondering if you could identify the one or two key pivot points where your life just suddenly went boom, off in a different direction. After school, I took gap year and I went to kibbutz in Israel. And that was an incredible experience. Still think of that as one of the happiest times of my life create this ideal society of people from all over the world, all different backgrounds would come and spend time together, working in the fields. I worked in the cow shed and discussing the meaning of life and how to bring about world peace in the mm. evening. Yeah. And that just showed me that what we have in common is so much. And at 18, that was very influential. So mm. that then led me to change. I was supposed to do classics and I changed to Middle East studies at Oxford. That was one. And the decision to go to Iraq in 2003. And people said to me, why on earth did you go to Iraq? And I thought, what a bizarre question. Why would you not go to Iraq? Yes. And yet for most people, they wouldn't go. For me, again, that was a life-changing decision. And despite everything, I'm still really pleased that I went. I think of the people I met, the friendships that I have. Iraqis have so enriched my life. And, you know, I'm really pleased that an Iraqi translated the unraveling into Arabic. And so I have all these Iraqi readers who reach out to me while well, they're under, you know, in lockdown for COVID. Mm. Some of them have been reading the unraveling as their lockdown book and they have book clubs to read it. So. Cheery reading. <laughs> yeah. And then they're contacting me over, you know, Facebook to ask opinions on this or opinions mm. on that. Mm. And my life today would be so different without Iraqis in it. It's been so greatly enriched mm. by the Iraqi friends that I have made. I've got three final questions and they're quick fire. That so the you, know, one. you said that was the penultimate question and then there were three more. I, I, I deliberately said, I think I'll have to re-listen to the, the, sort of the penultimate topic. What did I say? I, I tried to avoid the use of the quest word question because I realized I was going to ask three questions. So sorry if I, I misbranded this last section. Um, <laughs> Okay, three questions, quick fire, and just really what's off the top of your head. So where's the favorite place that you've been? Oman. Specific part or just the country? Just the country. Fantastic, beautiful country. Okay. Um, what's your favorite piece of music? Oh, God. You know, I can't think offhand, but I, you know, I always had trouble running. And I thought when I was running, I was listening to uh, like news podcasts. And a friend of mine said, put on some 80s music and go running with the 80s music and you'll find it much better. So that's why I just got back from running, listening to this 80s music. <laughs> nice. That, that does me. I love a bit of 80s music. Okay, and final question. Favourite book? I loved, when I was a student, I loved Orwell, George Orwell. I really loved him. But as a kid at school... I loved Tolkien, Lord of the Rings. And I think Lord of the Rings has probably had more impact on me than any other book. I think I saw myself as a hobbit because I'm not particularly tall. But this idea of like going out on big adventures, working hard against all odds to try and make things a little bit better, 
And I think that book, and you can read it, and I've read it over and over again, you see different things in it at different ages. So I will go with Lord of the Rings. Thank you, Emma. Emma, it has been an absolute pleasure talking with you today. Thank you for sharing your, your insights, your thoughts, your deep contextual understanding. It's a conversation I have massively enjoyed. Well, thank you very much, Luke. Great talking to you. And that was my conversation with Emma Skye. I really hope that you found that as interesting as I did. I think I'm going to take away two things from that. One was the kind of unplanned nature of Emma's life up till now, that uh, she's kind of just followed her nose and it looks great and planned out in hindsight. Uh, and she's now you know, director of the uh, Yale World Fellows Program, but that wasn't the plan. <laughs> um, the second thing, I found really interesting was the the, the importance of purpose and um, how when Emma was in Iraq and working towards that, it gave her life a huge amount of meaning. But when she came back to the UK, there was this big loss. And I think that's certainly something I found as well, that knowing what you want to do and why gives you so much more energy and motivation to work hard and bring about the change that you are then really passionate to see made. Anyway, that's enough uh, philosophizing for this week. I really hope that you enjoyed Facing Up and please do tell your friends, family, colleagues, pets about Facing Up and subscribe and uh, give this podcast a rate as well. Until next week, goodbye.